Howdy folks, this is Miss Sinclair with Miss Sinclair's History. Today we are on topic 3.7 of the AP US History Curriculum. That means we are in period three, which looks at the revolution and the time directly after it. And today we are going to be learning about the Articles of Confederation. If you are finding this helpful at all, please consider leaving a rating or review. If, um, if you're wondering like, who's this random lady? I'm just an ordinary high school teacher who's taught AP classes for what feels like forever. And I'm recording these videos as an asset for students who might have to miss class because of sports or illness for teachers who might be teaching a push for the first time and aren't quite sure what to include or just need a refresher or anyone who just wants to learn about US history. Okay, so what was the impact of the American Revolution? Last time we talked about the American Revolution's ideals and the way that impacted American society and other international revolutions like the French Revolution or the Haitian Revolution or even the Latin American revolutions. One of the things that you've heard me talk about a number of times is how the American Revolution wasn't very revolutionary in terms of societal change. Today, we're gonna to talk about what the leaders of the revolution envision as a government system. And we're gonna see some problems rising up pretty quickly. So we're talking about the Articles of Confederation and your objective for today, you will be able to explain how different forms of governments developed and changed as a result of the revolutionary period. So the Articles of Confederation. The Articles of Confederation are our first constitution, essentially. Written in 1777, they are our governing body during the Revolutionary War and in the period directly after it. So you've heard me say this, but people during this time would not identify themselves as an American. They would identify themselves first by their colony. I'm a Virginian, I'm a Pennsylvanian, I'm a son of Massachusetts, right? The colonies are really operating as a bunch of separate countries, not like units within a single federal state. Remember one of their big criticisms of Britain and parliament was sort of Britain's attempt to not only tax, but control the local legislative bodies, the Massachusetts General Court, the Virginia House of Burgesses. So in drafting the first governing body, the colonies are hyper aware of this. They do not want any of their local power controlled at all, right? The Articles of Confederation are described as a loose confederation of friendship, right? The states are supreme. The national government is virtually powerless. They have a single unicameral Congress what does that mean? Currently, we have a bicameral Congress. That means two houses. So you have the Senate 
in which every U.S. state has two senators. Then you have the House of Representatives, in which the number of representatives your state has is based off its population, but everyone is guaranteed at least one. For a law to be passed, it has to be voted and passed by both the House and the Senate. But in the Articles of Confederation, there is only one House. Every state gets one vote, regardless of population. So states like Virginia that have a ton of people will have the same voting power as Rhode Island. So that really means like per person voting power, Rhode Island has a lot more say in um, lawmaking than Virginia. And for a law to be passed, you had to have nine out of the 13 votes. So a super majority. The Articles of Confederation um, will make it so this unicameral Congress has no power to tax. They have no power to borrow. Um, they can borrow money or they can issue an IOU. They can issue bonds or print money. They can sell Western lands. They can ask for contributions from states, but there's no federal tax. Its tasks are to pass treaties, to raise an army and a post office. But how do you pay for the army and the post office if you can't pass tasks? Essentially, you can just ask Congress really nicely. Can you please give us some money? Like Virginia, do you wanna just give us some money? And of course the states are like, no, I don't wanna give you money. So it was ratified in 1781 by unanimous approval. And to change the Articles of Confederation, you needed um, unanimous approval, right? So you needed 13 votes to change the articles themselves and you just needed nine votes to pass a law. All right. So what were some of the successes of the Articles of Confederation? Because we're gonna spend a lot of times talking about its failures <laughs> and why we're gonna need a new constitution. But it did have some successes. And these are a couple of things that you do see pop up occasionally. So politically, what's its main success? Well, frankly, and this is not to be discounted. It's going to provide a government system that Americans would accept in 1776. If the constitution that we have now had been proposed in 1776, it would have been rejected. Heck, it barely passes in 1787, right? It is going to, not 1787, now we'll get to it. Um, in 1776, our colonies are still hyper-individualistic. You could not have proposed a government system that had more national power that they would have accepted. And then we would have ended up with 13 separate countries, all having tariffs against each other, and it would have been a mess. So the fact that we have a government that all 13 colonies accept, that keep us united, keep our system alive for 10 years, that ensures a Republican form of government. And Asterisk, when you hear me say Republican, I don't want you to think modern political parties. Similarly, you're going to hear me talk about Democrats. Do not think our modern political parties. 
When I talk about republicanism, I simply mean a form of government in which voters vote for representatives who will then make laws on their behalf. That form of government is known as a republic as opposed to a direct democracy in which everyone votes on everything. So politically, it creates a government that works well enough and it keeps us limping along for a decade. That's a big deal. What else did it do successfully? Well, you have Thomas Jefferson's North uh, uh, Land Ordinance of 1785, and then you're also gonna have the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. These land ordinances are important because one of the things that will result from the American Revolution is a bunch of new land in the West. Remember the proclamation of 1763 said American colonists were not allowed to go past the Appalachian Mountains. Now we have a bunch of land west of the Appalachian Mountains. Who does it belong to? How do we divide it up? Is it first come first serve? Is it squatters rights? Like just practically, we need a way to figure out how do we govern and divide up this land? And Thomas Jefferson has a plan. It allows for the orderly development of Western territory. It provides uniform procedures for both surveying territory and dividing it up. So the land was to be surveyed divided and sold. And the money gained from the sale of this land in the Northwest Territory was to go towards paying off the national debt. Remember, we have a lot of national debt. We borrowed money from Europe. So every township was six square miles. And then each township would be divided into 36 sections, each one square mile. So. Each section would have 640 acres. To buy a section, you had to buy all the acres at once. So really you had to be rich. So we see the rise of corporations that sell land. So a corporation would buy all 640 acres from the US government and then sell it in smaller parcels to individuals. And every 16th section, had to be set aside for public education. Eventually, a lot of this land will be sold off. Um, not so much in the West, like in Arizona and in the West, um, this land won't be sold off right away. And um, it means that the states have a lot of land left that they can sell later as it gets to be more valuable. And a lot of this land will be used in forming the first universities of the states. So this is a big deal, right? It's a, it's a systematic way to not only divide up the land, to organize it, but to also ensure we have funding for future education um, and funding to pay off our debt. You also will have the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which looks at how to govern the territories. Because there's some question, right? There's tension between the new states and um, you have to think about land is not equally distributed through the colonies, 
right? Many colonies don't have Western land and those who do have it want to be able to sell it. So how do you, how do you make this fair, right? When a state like Virginia extends from the Atlantic to the Mississippi or North Carolina, which extends from the Atlantic to the Mississippi. On the other hand, Delaware, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, they can't extend further west, right? Connecticut is trapped by Massachusetts and New York. Rhode Island is trapped by Massachusetts and Connecticut. There's nowhere else to go. So do states with more land have more influence? Well, that's not necessarily fair. More power? So one of the major successes of the Articles of Confederation was convincing states to cede that land to the federal government, right? It was better to let the federal government, the national government, control that land. It serves the nation's interests over the interests of individual states. It is a sort of step towards nationalism as viewing ourselves as actually United States as opposed to 13 states, which sometimes cooperate. So the Northwest Ordinance was another law created by Jefferson in regards to this, this new Northwest Territory. And the Northwest Territory includes modern day Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, um, what was it? Wisconsin, a little bit of Minnesota. Um, so the Northwest Ordinance looks at how do we govern territories, right? States know how to govern themselves and we're not forming new colonies. We, these are territories. So how do we govern territories? Well, Congress will appoint a governor of a territory. And once you have 60,000 people in your territory, you can apply to be a state. No slavery was going to be allowed in the Northwest Territory. Now, this is really interesting because it's Jefferson, a slave owner, and we'll get to Sally Hemings and the whole Jefferson slavery debacle. Jefferson is the one designing these laws, and he will not allow slavery in to be part of these laws. So the Northwest Land Ordinance of 1787 establishes how territories will be organized, how they will be governed, how states become, uh, territories become states. It says that this Northwest Territory will become at least three, but no more than five states, right? So it's not like the Northwest Territory will just become one ginormous state. It has to be at least three states, but not five. We're not gonna end up with a bunch of tiny states. It says that once a territory becomes a US state, it is given full participation in government. So that means when Ohio will eventually become, stop being a territory and become a state, Ohio will have just the same rights and privileges as Massachusetts, Virginia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this really sets a precedent of how the US would expand westward. All right, so if those are the pros of the articles, what are its weaknesses? And oof, its weaknesses are um, abundant. 
So first of all, as problems arise, the Articles of Confederation don't have any effective way to change itself, right? It's one thing to be like, here's our system. Oh, well, we didn't anticipate this happening. So we'll just change our system to accommodate for this problem we didn't foresee. But the Articles of Confederation say that any amendments, so any changes have to be unanimous, right? You have to have all 13 colonies or all 13 states on board to make a change to the system. And remember, they're all hyper-individualistic right now, so they're not going to agree. The federal government has no power to collect taxes. That means they don't have enough money. They have no power to regulate interstate or foreign trade. So economic quarrels between states make it really difficult to have a thriving economy. So every state, Massachusetts, Virginia, Georgia, South Carolina, each one has its own separate currency. It's not like they're all sharing the US dollar. There'd be like the Massachusetts dollar and the Virginian pound. And I'm making these things up, but you imagine. And every state is negotiating its own trade agreement with Europe. France doesn't want to have 13 different treaties with 13 different states and have to deal with 13 different conversion rates. They want to sign one trade agreement with the US government, full stop, right? So this means that Europe doesn't really wanna do business with the United States because it's too complicated. This means we have no money to pay back our debts to Spain, Holland, and, and France. Okay. So clearly our international economy is a mess, basically shut down. Well, the states are still viewing each other as competition instead of allies, right? Especially now that the revolution is done, right? They kind of united with a common enemy. Well, now they don't have a common enemy. So they're just trying to sort of win at the expense of each other. What do I mean by that? I mean, they are passing tariffs on each other. So that means if I am Virginia and I am um, I want to raise some tax revenue without necessarily raising taxes on my own people, I might set a tariff, meaning that um, things imported uh, or exported from Virginia have to cost more or imported into Virginia have to cost more. So making it less economically advantageous for South Carolina or North Carolina to do business with Virginia, right? If I say that it is more corn from North Carolina has a tariff on it, I'm hoping that that means Virginians will buy corn from other Virginians, right? This corn is 20 cents a pound. The corn from South Carolina is 50 cents per pound. All right, I'll buy the corn from Virginia. That's great for a you know, national economy and it certainly helps your local Virginia economy, but it hurts the North Carolina economy. So what's North Carolina gonna do in response? They'll pass their own tariff. Well, 
everything from Virginia is going to cost an extra dollar. And so no one is doing trade with each other. So not only is our international economy tanking, our internal economy is tanking. All right. What else? Well, the federal government has no power to enforce the laws that they pass. They might pass a law and they have no way of making the states listen to them. They essentially have to rely on the states themselves to enforce the laws. So the unicameral Congress might pass a law and then they have to be like, excuse me, um, Virginia, Massachusetts, Georgia, Pennsylvania, can you please make sure this goes into effect and enforce it? And you know, if people break the law, like have consequences for them. If Pennsylvania is like, ah, we don't really care about this, the law is not enforced, it's, it's meaningless. Because you need a supermajority, nine out of the 13 states to pass a law, it means very few laws are passed because they can't agree on anything. There's no executive. So and under our current system, the president is the executive. That means it is his job to execute the laws. And there's no judiciary. There's no federal courts. So there's no way to settle disputes among states. It's a mess. It's a mess. History Channel has a great video on the Articles of Confederation. I do recommend you watch. It gives a good summary, strengths and weaknesses. So let's talk about what the American system looks like under the Articles of Confederation. Um, it's not great. So briefly, manufacturing grows. We're free to trade without mercantilism. So that means we have new trade partners like China, right? Um, we have a bunch of land that we confiscated from the loyalists. That's great. But we have major economic problems with no power to, power to regulate commerce. We have inflation raging. We have Congress unable to regulate the economy. We have no way to regulate international trade. Great Britain floods the U.S. with cheap goods, Right. Um, undercutting our local economy, our manufacturing system collapses, we have an economic depression. So the economy emphasizes the weakness of our central government. Congress is blamed and economic instability increases anxiety. So without taxes, we can't pay our debts. And we can't pay our soldiers. So in 1783, we almost lose the government. It's thanks to Thomas Jefferson, sorry, not Thomas Jefferson. It's thanks to George Washington that we don't have a coup almost instantly, which is of course the danger of a new Republic. So the Continental Army hasn't been paid. Soldiers haven't been paid. They haven't, the, their pensions haven't even been funded. They're unhappy. So an anonymous letter floats around suggesting that the army should take action against Congress. Washington makes an emotional address to the officers in Newburgh, that's where he meets them. And he says, please like support Congress. We are, this is what we fought for. This is what we died for, for a system of government that represents the people. Like, please just, be patient. And in part because of the respect that soldiers have for George Washington in particular as a person 
It's not because they respect Congress. It's because they respect this one guy that the soldiers agree. And then Washington turns around and tells Congress, like, you got to get your act together. Congress agrees to pay the soldiers and give them five years of full pay instead of a lifetime pension at half pay. So it's not great, but we don't have a new government instantly. All right, what about foreign policy disasters? Well, Great Britain refuses to send an ambassador to the United States. Who do we send the ambassador to? Do we send 13 ambassadors to each of your new states? You have no clear government system. Who do we talk to, right? It's not you come to us and you talk to the king. Who do we talk to? Do we talk to each of your governors? Like you have no executive, you have no king, you have no leader. So no, we're not even gonna bother. And in fact, you're such a mess. We're not even gonna do trade with you. You can't do trade with the Caribbean, any of our colonies. You can't do trade with India. You can't do trade with us. And you know what? Actually, we're not going to um, move our soldiers out of the West. We still have forts there. We're keeping our soldiers there. You didn't pay back the loyalists like you said you would in our treaty. So we're leaving our soldiers. Spain is mad that they haven't been paid back for the war debts. And so they closed the Mississippi. That means the United States has no access to trade along the Mississippi River. I think it's important that you understand travel infrastructure at this time. There are very few roads and the roads that do exist are rutted out and muddy. So it is really dangerous and incredibly slow to travel over land. Your fastest way and most reliable way of getting your goods to market is by water, by barges, on rivers, and by sea. So the fact that Spain closes the Mississippi to us means we have no way of getting our goods to market effectively in the interior of the United States. Before our colonies all bordered the sea. And so it was like pretty easy to um, get goods to market quickly. But now we have all this interior territory and we have no way of moving goods within it. France is demanding repayment for loans. There's pirates in the Mediterranean, which are raiding our ships. And then you have Shays' Rebellion. Daniel Shays, his last name is plural, in 1786. Massachusetts farmers are facing high taxes and they had to pay their taxes in gold, right? No one has that much gold coin on hand. So J Daniel Shays leads a revolt. These farmers close down the Massachusetts courts to keep their lands from being seized. They called themselves the regulators, hearkening back to the North Carolina regulators who fought against the British. The Massachusetts government hadn't offered any paper money or helped help to debtors. So Massachusetts responds in force. Over a thousand farmers are arrested, but this frightens conservatives, right? It strengthens nationalists like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton who say, we need a stronger central government. So I wanna read you a few quotes about um, rebellion and revolution. And I want you to think about which quote do you agree with the most? So the first is from Thomas Jefferson. A little rebellion now and then is a good thing. 
the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. The next quote is from James Madison. Liberty may be endangered by the abuses of liberty as well as the abuses of power. Samuel Adams, our government at present has liberty for its object. And then finally, Alexander Hamilton. Genuine liberty requires a proper degree of authority to make and exercise the laws. Which quote do you agree with the most? It's interesting. You see on one side, Jefferson and Adams, Samuel Adams, are part of this old guard, right? Part of the men who pushed for the Declaration of Independence, pushed for the initial revolution. And they like how weak the federal government is right now. They like the Articles of Confederation. And sure, it might not work very well. And sure, there might be rebellions now and then, but is that really so bad, right? They view this sort of instability as um, a sign that the power is truly resting with the states. Madison and Hamilton, however, are younger. They weren't part of that initial push. They have risen up sort of during the war itself they have a different view on things. They see the instability as weakness, right? Madison and Hamilton see, look, too much freedom actually leads to problems, right? Imagine if we had no, um, no traffic lights, no uh, you know, speed limits, if everyone could drive however they wanted. Sure, everyone would be freer. We would have more liberty to drive however we wanted, but would that actually be good, right? Fewer people would drive to go spend money because it's so unsafe, right? It would lead to more instability and fear, less trust because we interact with each other less. Having an orderly highway system, road system means more people can actually use this system. It's better for our economy, it's better for our society. So, in the 1780s, you see the rise of sort of these nationalists led by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. These nationalists want a stronger central government and they take a stab at it with the Annapolis Convention in 1786. It's called by Virginia and they want to strengthen the Articles of Confederation. They want to amend it to allow the central government to regulate interstate trade and international commerce. And it's a total failure. Only five of the 13 states show up. The states aren't interested in losing any of their power, even if it means as a whole, the country would be stronger. Hamilton and Madison are gonna realize more drastic action is needed. Otherwise our American experiment will fail. So for our summary, I'd like you to explain how different forms of government developed and changed as a result of the revolutionary period. If you have any questions, please let me know. Please consider leaving a rating or review if you are listening to this as a podcast or watching the video on YouTube. I really appreciate it if you would. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.